We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our text this morning is from Zephaniah chapter 3. Who in the world is Zephaniah? Well, chapter 1, 1 begins this way. The word of Yahweh that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Well, Josiah reigned in Jerusalem from about 640 to 609 before Christ, which, which makes Zephaniah the last of the pre-exilic prophets, the last of those who prophesied before the Babylonian exile. Frankly, though, he doesn't get much press. Horace Hummel comments, If Micah is the neglected prophet of the 8th century seers, Zephaniah surely deserves the term among those of the 7th, especially when measured against the breadth, depth, and variety of his oracles. So, what is his message? What are the variety of his oracles? Well, verse 2. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Ouch. Man and beasts, the fish of the air, fish of the sea, the birds of the air. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, he says. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who bow down on the housetops, those who turn back. And then the climax in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is near. Verses 15 and 16 elaborate. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is where we get the Dies irae, dies of the Latin requiem for the dead. That's a long way from our text, isn't it? What do we read? 3.14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's a long way. It's a long way from Mary and Joseph, who are now in the second banner getting closer to Bethlehem. It's an even longer way from this house and this day, and this people. Yet Zephaniah is God's prophet, and we are God's people, and this is the appointed text. There are really two distinct yet interconnected themes here, judgment and joy. Judgment, God's judgment is always just. Chapter 3, verse 5, Yahweh is righteous within her, that is within Jerusalem. He will do no injustice. He will sweep away the iniquitous like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Korah and Dathan and Abiram in the wilderness, whom the earth swallowed whole along with their wives and their little ones and everything that was theirs. In Zephaniah's day, we hear the litany of sins, the idolatrous worship and the priests that lead it, the remnants of Baal in verse 4. Those who bow down and swear to Yahweh, let swear by Milcom, verse 5. All who clothe themselves with foreign garments, verse 8, i.e. those who practice foreign customs and habits. Who fill their master's house with violence, verse 9. Ewell speculates that this is the dishonorable servants of the king who thought that they could best serve their master by extorting treasures from their dependents by violence and fraud. 
and everyone who leaps over the threshold. The practice of the priests of Dagon, the Philistine god. Well, I haven't seen a lot of leaping over the threshold here, but sin remains. Our chasing after the world is the foreign garments of Zephaniah's warning. The opening verse of chapter 3 speaks of the city that accepts no instructions. She does not trust in Yahweh. This challenge against the first commandment could well be applied to our community, both within and without in the civil realm, notwithstanding what we print on our currency. The cries of the cold and the lonely and the disenfranchised ever reach God's ear, but they, do they touch us? God's judgment is always just. He may sweep us away as well. Reflecting on God's judgment, reading all three chapters of Zephaniah, leaves me with at least three observations. First, God rules over all. There is no one and nothing outside of his vision. He rules over all and he rules for all time. There is no escape from God's just judgment. Second, he is the creator of all things. His power is absolutely overwhelming. He created it and he has the right to destroy it, to sweep it away. And if he does, he is only executing his justice. And third, the last is perhaps the most difficult to grasp. God is most fully present with us in judgment. He sweeps away in love as a means of salvation. Zephaniah's day was so desperately wicked that the theme of restoration and remnant that was heard in the previous century in Isaiah and Hosea and Micah, the theme of our text in chapter 3, doesn't figure prominently in this book. Yet because he paints judgment in such dark and dramatic colors, Zephaniah may well serve as a bridge to the post-exilic period and beyond when they returned from Babylon, a time when the congregation began to understand that the persistent prophetic insistence that for the remnant, the invisible church, judgment was salvation. Death was glorification. The words of our Savior spring to mind from John chapter 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. Which brings us to the most difficult passage in all of Zephaniah. You heard the first half of chapter 1, verse 7, announcing the day of Yahweh. Now hear the second half. Because the sacrifices of Israel had become polluted... The Baals and the adulterous adulterous priests, the worshiping the hosts of heaven, therefore these words, Yahweh himself has prepared a sacrifice. He will sacrifice Israel, his own people. There's a distressing image in chapter 1, verse 12, with God, with a lamp, searching through the streets and the alleyways of Jerusalem. He's looking for what? He's looking for men and women and children to put on his altar of judgment. But finally, it's not the people, not Israel. It's Israel reduced to one. It will be the Christ, the Lord's anointed that is laid on the altar. With the lash of the Roman whip and the crushing weight of the crossbeam, 
with the shame of nakedness and the piercing of nails, with insults and blood, with searing pain and choking breath, the sacrifice of atonement ordained for all time. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Son, the Son we anticipate this Advent, is the perfect Lamb that takes away, that sweeps away the sin of the world. This is not some divine child abuse, odd idea that was popular in theology a few decades ago. It is the judgment of God that sweeps away sin, our sin. God laid on him our chasing after this world, our neglect of the needs of the world, our usurping the place and the role of God himself. God has woven together these two themes, joy and judgment, in the singular scene of sorrow, the sacrifice that he himself will prepare, the sorrowful joy of the Son. He laid down his life as a ransom for many. The sorrow of the garden prayer became the reality of Friday afternoon. Yet with that, he led a host of captives on high. He swept them away. There's a wonderful passage from Ephesians where Paul quotes Psalm 68 and then turns it into the pageantry of the last day. The sun's joy as he sweeps us into the heavenly realm. And the sorrow, joyful sorrow of the Father. Joy in receiving the satisfaction for sins, reconciliation with man and all of creation. My sin and your sin, the sins of all people for all time, swept away their debt paid in full. Mingled with the sorrow of that dark hours on Friday. When he turned his face away from the beloved. The taunts of the rulers at the scene could well be applied to him. He saved others. Why not this one? This mingling of joy and judgment, joy and sorrow, go to the very core of God's nature. I shared this with the Bible class earlier this morning, this quotation from Cockrell. Christ's suffering was neither a logical necessity forced upon God, nor a mere decision of his will, but an appropriate expression of the divine character. Thus his incarnate suffering was integral to the Son's person as the ultimate revelation of God's character. This is who he is. This is the sacrifice that he ordained and that he performed. God has utterly swept away the judgment against us. Cyril of Jerusalem connects our text from Zephaniah 3 to baptism. He writes, Take heart, O Jerusalem, the Lord will take away your iniquities. The Lord will wash away the filth of his sons and daughters by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. In allusion to Isaiah 4.4, He will pour upon you clean water and you will be cleansed from all your sins. Choiring angels shall encircle you, chanting, Who is it that comes up all white and leaning upon her beloved? For the soul that was formerly a slave has now accounted its Lord as its kinsman. Close quote. You are redeemed. Your sin atoned for. Your sin has been swept away by the payment of a life for a life. 
and God's wrath has become his gracious acceptance. Now, now we can hear the joy of our text, the Father's joy in verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. Rejoice. Be quieted. Exalt. God has swept us into another realm, into the heavenly realm in his presence. I hope you've noticed that I've used that expression, swept away, as both law and gospel in this message. There's a wonderful synergy with this in the Hebrew word in Zephaniah. In chapter 1, what we translated as utterly swept away translates a Hebrew idiom that places an infinitive absolute and an indicative form of the same verb right next to each other. Literally, a soft, a seaf. But what happens when you sweep? When you sweep with your hand. Try it. Do it. Sweep with your hand. Imagine you're sweeping sand off a blanket on the beach. Or you're sweeping extra flour after you've kneaded bread on the countertop. What happens? Some of it gets stuck in your hand. In chapter 3, we find the very same word in verse 18. tea, I will gather. The image of sweeping is also the image of gathering. And Zephaniah uses this to describe what God does for us. He sweeps away in judgment. He gathers with joy. The very same word. The sorrowful joy of the son. The joyful sorrow of the father. But it's not joy without judgment. We walk with clay feet. There's no joy without sorrow as if joy were the absence of sorrow. Advent culminates with the arrival of Christmas. It can be a difficult time for many. A first Christmas without a loved one. The remembrance of those who are not sharing Christmas. To these, the joyful sounds of the season are hollow and hurtful. Which is why the message of Zephaniah is so timely. It's not joy without sorrow. But it's joy in the presence of someone who comes to you and joins with you in sorrow. John the Baptist and Paul both are writing in our other readings. They're writing from prison. And the message that John hears is what? Believe that the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, has come. Therefore, even in chains, Paul declares, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. We rejoice because Jesus can sweep away our sin. All power in heaven and earth has been given to him. He can and he will. As Zephaniah declares, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. God has swept away the judgment against us in the atoning sacrifice of his son. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.